You're listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au. Thanks everybody for coming this morning. Been uh, a number of great evangelists down through history. Some seem to have uh, a great people who have a great impact for the kingdom every time they open their mouth to speak about Christ. And there's a couple that spring to mind. The first, of course, would be John the Baptist. Crowds of people flocked out to hear him preach and uh, uh, to speak of the coming Lamb of God, who at that stage he didn't know who exactly it was. It wasn't until he baptised Jesus he knew who it was. One of the earliest evangelistic crusades we have on record is on the day of Pentecost, of course, where Peter gets up to speak about Jesus. The Holy Spirit falls on the crowd and 3,000 people get saved in, on the spot. In more recent times, you may, may have heard of the evangelist George Whitfield in the early 1700s. He was responsible for preaching to crowds of up to 20,000 people that uh, responded in such droves they called it the first great awakening in, in America in um, the New England region huge proportion of the population was converted to Christ under his ministry. Less than a century later, Charles Finney triggered the second great awakening in a similar part of the country by his preaching. Finney's methods owed a lot more to psychology and uh, emotionalism and hype than they did to the gospel, but he was a hugely popular evangelist at the time. Billy Graham, of course, is the most well-known of uh, evangelists in recent years. His rallies attracted tens of thousands and sometimes hundreds of thousands of people to each meeting. When he came to Melbourne in 1956, a crowd of 150,000 people packed into the MCG to hear Billy Graham speak of Christ. That's a record that still stands in the MCG 64 years later. You've probably heard, of course, of Reinhard Bonnke called the Billy Graham of Africa. Apparently, there were six million people at just one of his meetings in 2017. These evangelists are all known for their effectiveness, the effectiveness of their ministry. When they speak of Christ, huge numbers of people respond. And then, of course, there are people who lead people, uh, others to Christ quietly in the background, mostly unnoticed. There's a couple of small snippets in the early chapters of John's Gospel. The first is Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. The first thing he did after meeting Jesus was to go off and find his brother, Simon Peter, and tell him we have found the Messiah. The next day, Jesus finds Philip and tells him to follow. Philip immediately goes to find his, his friend Nathaniel and says to him, come and see. Some people are destined to greatness by their impact and effectiveness. Others are destined to greatness in their obscurity. Have you ever heard of Albert McMakin? Probably not. Not many people would have heard of Albert McMakin, I suspect, but he's responsible for more people hearing the gospel in the 20th century than any other single person. And there's a good chance you've never heard of Albert. I'll say a bit more about him later on. For now, let's have a look at another effective evangelist. 
and it's an unlikely one too. We'll begin by reading our passage in John chapter 4, if you open your Bibles to John 4 verse 28, and uh, just to get a reminder of the story. John 4.28 starts, So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labour. Others have laboured and you have entered into their labour. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them and he stayed there for two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the saviour of the world. Now, Jesus has been talking to this Samaritan woman for a little while now while the disciples go into town to get something to eat. She came to the well just to get some water, not expecting anyone to be there in the middle of the day and not expecting to get into a conversation with anyone, let alone a Jewish rabbi. But Jesus is never one to miss an opportunity to set people free. He's been gradually revealing more of himself to her and little by little drawing her in. She's a bit standoffish to start with. It's probably understandable. It was culturally unacceptable for a man to be talking to a woman publicly in the first place in those days, even if that woman was his wife. For a strange man to be speaking to her was a surprise. And for that stranger to be a Jewish rabbi from a race of people who despised Samaritans was even more surprising. Then for this man to be talking to a woman with a questionable past was nothing less than shocking. So it's no surprise that she would be a little distant and cautious to begin with. She hasn't ignored him, but she also hasn't been completely forthcoming with him either. But that's about to change. As Jesus engages her in conversation, she goes through stages in her understanding of him. First, she refers to him simply as a Jew. Then she begins to wonder if he is greater than their ancestor Jacob. Next, she perceives that he is a prophet. By the end of the conversation, after Jesus has revealed himself to her as the Messiah, indeed as God himself, she's convinced. This is no ordinary man. This man is special. In fact, this man is special enough that she wants everyone to know about him. She wants everyone to meet him. 
So the woman left her water jar, it says in verse 28, and went into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Now I wonder, was this woman born again at this stage? We can't be entirely sure because the story never tells us explicitly. But I think she was. Certainly there's been a dramatic change come over her. Dramatic enough that she no longer feels the need to skulk around in the shadows hoping no one notices her. That must have been her life for some time now. Five husbands she's had and she's now living with a man to whom she's not married. This woman has a reputation in town and it's probably not a good reputation. Whether she deserves her reputation or not is not the point. She has it, like it or not. Now, having a bad reputation in the 20th century was not something to be, it was sometimes something to be proud of and even something to promote. Some have been able to turn a bad reputation into fame and fortune. Black Sabbath, the rock band of the early 70s, spring to mind as an, ex- an early exponent of cultivating a bad reputation for profit. But not so in ancient culture, and certainly not so for a woman in ancient culture. She would have been rejected by everyone in town. She would have had no friends. No man would help her. No woman would be allowed to associate with her. Even her own family would likely have turned their backs on her. Probably the only person in the whole community who would talk to her is the man she is living with. And who knows what their relationship was like. Maybe he was exploiting her for his own pleasure. I think it's important that we understand something of the social isolation and rejection that this woman experienced. Because it tells me that something significant has happened to this woman during her conversation with Jesus. It tells me that she's most likely been born again. Because now, instead of sneaking back into town hoping that no one notices her, she heads back making as much noise as possible to get everyone's attention. Come and see a man who told me all that I ever did, she tells her fellow townsfolk. Can this be the Christ? We don't know very much about the conversation that Jesus had with her. It's not reported in detail for us, but Jesus probably didn't tell her everything she ever did. I don't think he had time for that sort of in-depth report on her. But he said enough about her past, her sordid and sorry past, that she's impressed. And I think she's impressed not only with his knowledge of her, but also with his gracious manner towards her. It's attractive. Not in a romantic or a sexual way, but attractive in a comforting way, an encouraging way, an accepting way. And Lord knows this woman needed someone who would accept her, who would respect her, someone who would treat her with dignity. Don't we all? Isn't that one of the things we most want from life? Acceptance, respect, dignity. If we have those, we can face all sorts of problems and opposition. For we know that we're valued by someone. And that's why Jesus offered to this woman 
in the way he treated her, the gentle way he probed in the gracious office he made to her. He offered her acceptance. And that's why now, instead of hiding her past, she would draw attention to it. That's why now she'd run back into town to remind people of her unfortunate history. Because she's been changed, changed from the inside. And when you're changed by Jesus Christ, you want other people to know about it. You want other people to experience it for themselves. It's only natural. I'm convinced that this woman has been born again. Something Nicodemus couldn't get his head around back in chapter 3. Jesus spoke to him explicitly about the need to be born again. And Nicodemus was a great teacher and authority among the Jews. He was the teacher of Israel, Jesus said. But Nicodemus went away scratching his head, wondering what Jesus was talking about. Not this woman. She experienced the new birth that Nicodemus couldn't understand. And she wanted others to know all about it and to meet Jesus for themselves. Now, of course, she didn't have her theology fully formed at this stage. Can this be the Christ is the best she can venture at this stage. No certainty yet, but enough to cling to. I do believe. Help my unbelief, she might have said. How many of us have our own theology down pat? It doesn't come to us fully formed. We learn, we grow, we mature. We understand more as our walk with Jesus Christ continues. So we should be slow to judge new Christians for their lack of knowledge and quick to help them learn and grow. Even Paul, the greatest theologian since Jesus, had to go away for three years to learn before he was ready to preach about Jesus. Peter walked and talked and ate with Jesus for three years, but he had to be pulled up and corrected and even rebuked for his incorrect theology. Little wonder then that this uneducated and illiterate woman would go to townsfolk with a question, can this be the Christ, rather than a bold statement about him. The point is, though, that she's been changed. She may not be able to explain it properly, but she wants people to know. She wants people to meet this man, this Christ. She wants them to experience the grace and mercy that she's experienced for themselves. In fact, she's so eager to tell people that she rushed off, leaving her water pot behind. Now we'll skip over verses 31 to 34, where Jesus is talking to the disciples while the woman rushes back into town. I talked about them two weeks ago. If you missed it, you can catch up on our podcast or website or Facebook page. In verse 35, there's a harvest of souls about to happen. In fact, this is the first large-scale conversion of lost souls and sinners to true believers, and all as a consequence of this, of this not-so-chance meeting of Jesus with this woman. While she's gone, Jesus prepares his disciples for this coming harvest and teaches them, and by extension teaches us, some profound truths about how the kingdom of God grows. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. 
Already the one who is reaping is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. There must have been some ancient saying about four months and then the harvest. There's no record in history of a saying like that, but the way Jesus drops it in the conversation suggests it was a well-known idea. The point is, though, that when farming, you don't get your crop at the same time you sow it. You have to spend time on the hard labour of tilling the soil, planting, fertilising, weeding and waiting, so much waiting. Eventually, the crop springs up, grows and matures until it's ripe and ready to harvest. Every crop, every fruit tree, every grapevine, even every lamb that is born goes through this process lasting months, even years, before it's finally ready to harvest. Sometimes the process is so long that the one who sowed the seed never gets to see the harvest of the crop. But here Jesus tells them, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. It's a bit of an unusual comment. Not many crops that I'm familiar with are white when they're ready to harvest. If he had said the fields are golden brown for harvest, it might have made more sense. But some have suggested that Jesus was pointing to the crowds of Samaritans coming to him out of the town, dressed in their white robes in the midday heat in response to this message of the woman. And these crowds coming in the distance looked like a field of corn waving in the breeze. That sounds as likely to me as any other explanation. Whatever he meant by this, the disciples were about to share in the joy of a harvest of ripe souls for the kingdom of God. Sower and reaper rejoicing together. And the Samaritan woman who went into town to sow the seed is about to rejoice with the disciples who get the privilege of reaping the harvest. I wonder whether the fields might be white for harvest amongst us in our day. The explosion of Black Lives Matters protests around the world after the deaths of George Floyd and Ahmed Arbery tell us that the world is angry, unhappy, dissatisfied, wanting change, wanting safety. And the coronavirus has the whole world in a state of anxiety and fear, even suspicion. It's forced Christians and churches to reconsider how we get the message of the gospel out. Many churches are using live streaming and Zoom meetings. Many churches have been forced into an online presence in this lockdown that we never considered doing before. I'm hearing reports from here in Melbourne, around Australia and across the globe of people who would never have set foot in a church building now tuning into church services online. And God be praised, some of them are responding to the gospel they're hearing. The fields are white for harvest in ways we haven't seen for who knows how long. Who do you know who may be ripe for harvest? Who do you know who may just be waiting for you to say, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? If the fields are white for harvest, then that means that someone has prepared the ground for that harvest. Someone has saved the seed. 
Now, we celebrate the great evangelists. Sometimes we even put them on a a pedestal and aspire to be like them because they're so effective at leading people to Christ. But no evangelist can take all the credit for the harvest. Their work is not done alone. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labour. Others have laboured and you have entered into their labour. Do you ever give a moment's thought to the one who prepares the soil and plants the seed that the evangelist reaps? Few of us do, I suspect. We applaud the evangelist because we see the fruit immediately. And that's not wrong. The angels in heaven rejoice over every person who comes to Christ. Should we do less? But it can also be discouraging for those of us who never seem to be able to lead someone to Christ. It can make us feel guilty or ashamed about our ineffectiveness or our fear to ask someone for a response. But no evangelist can reap the harvest unless someone has sown the seed before him. Evangelists need to be careful that they don't fall into the trap of pride and arrogance, assuming that they're the only ones really doing the work of advancing the kingdom. Billy Graham, I'm convinced, never fell into this trap. Who knows how many millions of people are now children of God thanks to his faithful gospel preaching. But he always remained humble about his gift and his calling. The Apostle Paul wrote warning that no one become puffed up with pride. What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? He says in 1 Corinthians 4.7. Why do you act as if this is all your own work rather than God's gift to you? I'm sure Billy Graham understood this. And I'm sure Billy Graham was ever mindful of the fact that he only had this gift this privilege of leading people to Christ because an obscure farm worker by the name of Albert McMakin once said to the young Billy Graham, come and see. Albert McMakin was the man who invited Billy to hear an evangelist speak about Christ. And at that meeting, Billy Graham committed his life to serving Christ. One day when all the numbers are crunched, it will be found that Albert McMakin was instrumental in at least one more salvation than Billy Graham was. He was the key to untold millions of people hearing the gospel when Billy Graham got up to preach. But Albert McMakin has never been celebrated as a great evangelist. But that doesn't matter in the kingdom of God. One sows, another reaps. But the sower and the reaper rejoice together. That surely is the point of what Jesus is telling his disciples here. There's no hierarchy of abilities and importance here. One is not more valuable than the other. The sower must do his work of preparing the soil and sowing the seed faithfully. It's hard work and the results of his efforts are not usually visible for months or years. If you're a sower of seed, don't get discouraged. These things take time. Unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, 
it bears much fruit, Jesus said. Be patient. Don't give up. Continue to share the gospel when you can and pray that God brings the growth. Many a person, maybe even you, is in the kingdom today because they had a faithful parent or grandparent, someone who's no longer alive to see your salvation, who shared the gospel with you and prayed for you. If you're a pastor or preacher or leader of a home group who despairs because you don't see results of your ministry, be encouraged. You don't need to resort to gimmicks or motivational speeches or self-help messages. The word of God is all you need to be sharing. For it's the word of God that is powerful and effective to bring about salvation. Paul was not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The word of God will bring salvation in God's good time. Share the gospel faithfully and leave the growth up to God. And when the crop is ripe, the reaper must come to harvest it. God knows how and when to bring in the harvest. God knows who to employ to reap the harvest. And he knows exactly the right time to send the harvester to work. If you have the privilege of reaping the harvest, thank God for you and thank God for your faithfulness to gather the crop when it's ripe. But don't ever imagine that you've done the work alone. Remember, others have laboured and you have entered into their labour. And remember also that while one sows and another waters and yet another reaps, it is God who gives the growth. True faith, saving faith, can never be based on just what another person tells us. That may be what captures our interest and stirs our curiosity in the first place. It may be what leads us to the first grain of faith, but it can't be the totality of our faith. That's what the Samaritan townsfolk discovered. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the saviour of the world. Their initial response was to her word, her testimony. Don't minimise the value of personal testimony. It opens doors, it gets a hearing. But it's not your testimony that will bring about the salvation of another person. That's the seed being planted or watered. More is needed. True faith, saving faith, comes because the person believes his word, Christ's word. Why is that important? Firstly, because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ, according to Romans 10, 17. And of course, because it's the gospel that is the power of God to salvation, not our wise or persuasive words. But let's think about this some more. What happens if your faith is based on the word of another person 
whether it be this Samaritan woman or Billy Graham or your loving mother? What do you do if that person then changes their stance and rejects Christ and Christianity and tells you to do the same? What will happen to your faith? What will happen to your salvation? For this does happen. Let me tell you briefly about another evangelist, one who toured the circuits with Billy Graham. His name was Charles Templeton. Templeton was converted to Christianity in 1936, becoming an evangelist and touring Europe and other places alongside his friend Billy Graham. Reports from the 40s and 50s consider Charles to be a more powerful and effective evangelist even than Billy was. Templeton went to seminary, pastored churches, founded Youth for Christ, and hosted a weekly Christian TV show called Look Up and Live. All sounds good, doesn't it? But in 1957, Templeton renounced his faith, and he died in 2001, having never returned to the faith of his youth. What became of all the people who responded to Templeton's call for salvation in his rallies and crusades? If their faith was still founded on Templeton's words and faith, I fear they too would turn their back on Christ. If you can be convinced by a person's words, you can be convinced otherwise by his change of heart, or you can be convinced by a better argument from another person. But if you're convinced by the word of Christ himself, you will never waver. For he promises himself to keep you safe to the end. If Templeton's converts turn to the word of God, meeting Jesus Christ personally there and hearing his words for themselves, they would be secure. Don't imagine that this is a problem for generations past. In only the last couple of years, we've seen some famous, popular and influential Christian leaders do the same. Joshua Harris, pastor and author of the hugely popular book, I Kissed Dating Goodbye, renounced his faith in 2018, telling others to do the same. Closer to home, Marty Sampson, Hillsong worship leader and songwriter, responsible for dozens of wonderful songs such as Oh Praise the Name, Anastasis, turned his back on his faith just last year. In an interview, Marty gave some of his reasons, saying, How many preachers fall? Many. No one talks about it. How many miracles happen? Not many. No one talks about it. Why is the Bible full of contradictions? No one talks about it. How can God be love, yet send four billion people to a place all because they don't believe? No one talks about it. Christians can be the most judgmental people on the planet. They can also be some of the most beautiful and loving people. But it's not for me. I am not in anymore. I want genuine truth, not the I just believe it kind of truth. Now, Marty, I've got news for you. No one may be talking about these problems in the circles you moved in, in the prosperity gospel movement, in word of faith churches, in name it and claim it circles, but plenty of the rest of us wrestle with these things every day. And we talk about it. We write about it. 
We discuss it publicly, and we have done for 2,000 years now. If your faith is built on Marty Sampson's testimony or his songs, what will you do now? Will you follow his lead, or the lead of Charles, or the lead of Joshua? Will you too turn your back on Christ? Or will you instead turn to the words of the one who is reliable, who is unchanging, who always tells the truth? The one who guarantees to save to the uttermost all who come to him in faith. Will you say, along with the Samaritan townsfolk, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard ourselves and we know that this is indeed the saviour of the world. Have you met this Christ? Has he changed your life? Do you wish everyone you know to meet him too? Is the experience of his grace still so fresh to you, even if it was decades ago, that you still get excited about it? Then thank God for that. It's a good sign that you have been genuinely born again. And it means that you have something of value, lasting value, eternal value to share with others. You don't need to have all the answers. You don't need to be a theologian. You don't even need to know where all the relevant Bible verses are. This woman didn't, but she knew enough to tell other people about him. She knew enough to say, come and see. Sometimes that's all we can do. Sometimes it's all we need to do. Some are sowers, some are reapers. But regardless of which you are, it is God who makes the seed grow. And it's his responsibility to ensure the result, not ours. That takes some pressure off those of us who feel guilty about our lack of evangelistic success. You and I can't change a person's heart. Only God can do that. But he invites us to be part of the process of sowing the seed or reaping the harvest, or sometimes both at the same time. Are you a sower or a reaper? Whichever you are, do it with all your heart. Never get discouraged. And always, always point people to the one whose words never fail to Jesus Christ, the Saviour of the world. Let's close in prayer. Our great God and Saviour of the world, we rejoice that you've seen fit to sow seeds in our lives that brought forth the harvest of our salvation. We thank you that you prepared both sowers and reapers, reapers before us to do the work. Lord, we pray for open doors to sow the seed of the gospel so that it may grow into a ripe harvest in your perfect timing. <clears throat> and we lift up our eyes now to see where the fields are ripe for harvest around us. We pray, Lord, that you would grant us the privilege of harvesting for your kingdom, harvesting souls of our family, our friends, our workmates. And we look for opportunities, opportunities to support and encourage others who are doing this work faithfully around the world. Lord, we ask that the people we speak to about Christ will respond with enthusiasm 
coming to see and meet them for themselves. And we ask that you use us, whether as sowers or as reapers, to build your kingdom. Until you return, Jesus, in all your glory, we pray these things. Amen. Thanks for listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au.